Today's conversation contains some content that might not be suitable for those under the age of 18, depicting war and some graphic language being used. And all of a sudden I hear some, some movement over to my left and I look over and there's three guys and they're heavily armed. The guy looked at me and I looked at him about the exact same time. And, and it was like, oh my God, this is, this is the enemy. This is happening right now. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today we're with Vietnam veteran Tim Keenan. Tim spent nearly a year in Vietnam serving for A Company. He's the subject of an award-winning short documentary directed by Neil Stino called Nanique. And Tim's going to share with the Adventure Deficit community about his time in Vietnam, some harrowing combat, his struggle with PTSD, and the healing that took place through his adventure 40 years later on the Appalachian Trail. So Tim, um, part, of, part of what our listeners are going to want to hear from you today is uh, a little bit of background. Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what, uh, what got you um, up to the point where uh, you decided that you were going to through-hike the Appalachian Trail? Well, I mean, okay, I was born in Grand Rapids and I uh, graduated in 1964 and uh, things were happening right there regarding uh, uh, Vietnam was starting to heat up and People were getting drafted. Actually, a couple of my classmates got killed over there, but I was a very non-political dude, as were a couple other friends of mine as we moved out of our house and dropped out of school for one semester to party a little bit. And then we were going to re-enroll, so we didn't think anyone would know. We didn't know the school is obligated to call the draft board and say, guess what? Tim Keenan is not in school this semester. And then I got the... Got the greeting letter in the mail. I go for my physical. Then about a month later, his greetings. I hereby ordered for induction. Actually, they they drafted our entire house. Everyone in our house got drafted. We all got on the same bus, and our house was now empty. And uh, actually, one one other guy got infantry like me, and and the other guy got air reconnaissance. And and they're there and changed my life. Wow. So from the point that you got that letter uh, up until the, the point where you got uh, dropped off um, to meet with uh, with your new crew, um, what what took place in the interim? You, you had to do some training, right? Yeah, I got went through basic training. Then we got orders for advanced individual training. And like this guy that was in our in our in, in bunked in the same area of, of, of us, he couldn't read or write. And uh, when we got our orders for advanced individual training, oftentimes I read his letters to him that he got, and I helped him write letters. He'd tell me what to write. He got engineering school. I got light weapons infantry. No kidding. I thought, wow, I guess I'm in the Army now. <laughs> and uh, so I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana for infantry training at this place called Tigerland. And uh, I remember the, the sergeant there telling us that everyone are going to go to Vietnam and half of us aren't going to come home. I'll never forget that. I don't know why he had to say something like that, but he did. Um, as luck would have it, they said, is anyone here with 15 or more years? There's a school in this whole company. I, I, and I put my hand up, even though I didn't. But if you count nursery school, I figured I do have 15 years. Right. So they took me and another guy out and I thought, oh, good. See, they saw the light. I'm going to get a good job. But they put me in heavy weapons infantry, which was actually better because I'd be a mortarman. So... At least I wouldn't have to move around and be out in the bush all the time. So I did as well as I could. I was an expert in that. But then when I did when I end, up, end up in Vietnam, they were shorthanded infantry. And I go, I'm a mortarman, mortarman. And they said, we don't care. We need you in infantry now. So I was back in the infantry. I was a regular squad in a squad for a while. Then it became um, when one of uh, the radio operators or RTO got wounded. I took his position. That was in December, so I had been there like five months, and then I, now I was an RTO. 
Okay. And tell us about uh, week one in Vietnam. Week one in Vietnam um, was very interesting. Uh, we got there and uh, actually, I, I think if I remember correctly, the airstrip was being mortared, or mortared somewhere and we ended up landing in Benoit. Or like, I'm not sure exactly, but we went to these barracks and and uh, this one guy came in and said, God, there's a, there's a, he came in wide-eyed. He said, there's a, there's a detail here worse than KP, KP's kitchen police. It's bad. You got to be there at three o'clock in the morning. You're there until about one o'clock in the morning. It's like 22 hours of washing pots and pans and stuff. And I said, there's nothing worse than KP. He said, there is. I said, what is it? He said, burning human waste. I go, oh, I couldn't, I was confused. What, what is that? Burning shit, man. There's no toilets here. And I go, oh, come on. And I, I, I left and I, I walked around and I looked. I saw this little building out there and I went and opened a door. And sure enough, there was like about 10 places to put your butt on both sides, 20 places. And so the next day we were doing, they were dishing out uh, detail. People do this and these people do this. Just, and there was like three of us left or four of us left. And I said, cool, uh, good. I, I'm going to go back to the barracks and write some letters home and tell them I'm okay. And he, this lieutenant said, no, no, come here a minute, follow me. And they were, we were walking right towards the shit house. I go, oh, no. And uh, it was really weird because you had to pick up the, the, the door, swing straight up, and you got to reach in and pull out this half barrel, come face to face with it, pull it out, and stack them up in a pyramid shape and put, pour a little gasoline in each one and light them on fire. And then, and then only the surface shit burns. And you have to stir it to make it <laughs> turn into ashes. And when it's all ashes, you empty them out and you put them back. So that's what I did. My, that was my first, or first, the first day in Vietnam. That's what I did. That was my detail. Wow. That sounds disgusting in every sense of the word. It was disgusting in every sense of the word, but, uh, you know, we got our orders to go for our, we, we stayed there until we got our orders where we're going to go. And then I found out I was going to be in the fourth division. So I got on a, a, some transport plane. They flew up to Pleiku, which is up in the central highlands. And, uh, we landed and, and I was going to go to, uh, this area where all the replacements are. And they, there, now there was just a few of us, but the, they were, they were going to train us for a week, uh, take us out into the jungle. Uh, which is, is very secure. You're not going to get hit, but you don't know at the time. But uh, they said, one, one person's got to stay back. And they, I was chosen. You know, what? Okay, I'll, I don't know why I'm staying back. I got chosen to burn shit again. I stacked them up again. This time I was going to get done with this detail really, really fast. I pour more gas in there. I poured way too much gas. I lit a match and I, there were, it, was, it was protected by this galvanized fence. And I threw the match and boom, boom, boom. And all these guys that were inside the thing, they were come out. They thought they were getting mortared. I blew, it blew the shit, blew the fence down. Um, there was shit everywhere. And uh, I was uh, relieved of my duty. I never had to burn shit again. But as it is, I would have burned shit for an entire year rather than do what I ended up doing. You know, when you're going to go in the infantry, when you're, you're going to go into war, you really have no idea what it's like until you get there. I mean, you, you, have, you can go through play like an AIT when I was at Fort Polk, Louisiana. We, yeah, we had all kind of exercises training, but it was all a joke. You know, I mean, the intensity of war is just, it's, it, you can't put a finger on it. Um, it's just something that you have experienced. You have to experience to, to really feel it. But once you feel it one time, then you're just, Pretty much scared forever. You came home with some some PTSD from some of the battle uh, that that you endured, some of the firefights that you were uh, subjected to. Tell us a little bit about that, Tim, if you would. Well, you end up, you know, like per, for the first couple months. I mean, it was like a giant camping trip, actually. I mean, my pack, you know, your pack is really heavy. I mean, you carry each soldier, each one of us carried. Well, 400 rounds of uh, M16 ammo, um, a th uh, 100 rounds of machine gun ammo for the machine gunner, f four hand grenades, a Claymore mine, um, uh, 15 sleeping, uh, um, no, um, like sandbags to, for our bunkers, uh, a machete, 
um, uh, nine meals of sea rations or whatever you, you're carrying, a water, six, five or six canteens of water, your pack weighs 60, 70 pounds. And when I was an RTO, it probably weighed closer to 90. And we were just moving every day. We were supposed to be looking for the enemy, but it never happened. And, and most of the guys who were with us were all new and they hadn't seen combat either. There was a few of them that had seen one, a couple little firefights in, in May of the, you know, of that year, but it was a, pretty much a small event. But, and then uh, um, on this one day, we were in this place called VC Valley and we came into, we came to this little, there was hooches around there and um, little hooches that, um, grass, it's like, like, like a kind of uh, bamboo on a roof. Oh, I gotcha. And they're just, you can make them quickly. And it's, it's like a cover for, and it was a, like a fresh fire there too. It just looked like it was just gone out. Okay. So, and it's only in, only the enemy was in that area, allegedly. That's what we were led to believe. So we set up there because whoever was there, there was sandals there. There was, they were coming back and it was, the enemy, I guess, and so we set up a perimeter around around this around this little. There was about four or five of these hooches right there, and then they we sent out sweeps in three different directions. Three guys go out about fifty meters and look around and then come back. Okay. And so I and two other guys went out, did the sweep, and the rest of the guys that were in, in inside the perimeters. They just start playing cards, you know. I mean, it's killing time. And uh, I went out. We went out and. You could look across this little grass. It wasn't really thick. Like later on, it was wasn't really as thick as as it was as as in later on when I was there. But you could look across this little valley like a draw, and you could see another a bigger hooch over there. And this one guy said, "There's another hooch over. There. Let's go check it out." I go, "No, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm you know. That's we're not checking it out without get the rest of our squad. We'll all go. Not just two of us. We're not going going over there. We're going to, supposed to go out here 50 meters." So I said, go on back and get the rest of our squad. So he start, he goes back, and the other guy, who was, we, we're kind of ducked down kind of like these, almost like a long grass, like almost like sea oats, you know, grass. And it was we, he was kind of crouched down. He, he goes, psst, I think I saw some people walking back towards the perimeter. And I said to him, I said, well, that's probably our other sweep, because it, it would be coming from that way. And... He said, I don't think so. I said, well, okay, well, whatever. And because I'd never seen the enemy. None of us had, really. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm standing there. I've got my, I've got, got my M16 and never fired it. And, and, um, and all of a sudden I hear some, you know, some movement over to my left. And I look over and there's three guys and they're heavily armed. Oh my God. And the guy looked at me and I looked at him about the exact same time. Maybe I, I was looking at him before he looked at me, but he had, an, and, and it was like, oh my God, this is, this is the enemy. This, this is, is real. This is real. This is happening right now. And I picked my rifle up and I fired and I fired on automatic and I just, a, a burst and and I think this other guy did the same. I don't know when I got down and this, these other two went down the straw and I got around and I fired and I, I, and I hit this other guy and he sprawled and then he got up and started running. I knew I hit him, but, um, and I was fumbling around and tried to put it, I was shaking and tried to put another magazine in my weapon hmm. and, uh, and, and they were gone. And, and then I went over to the, the guy that, I had hit and um, I was kind of worried going over to him because I don't know if I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see him go down or whatever, what I, I got over there by him and, and he was lying on the ground on his back and, and he was dead, but his body was still jerking around. It was a really, a bad scene, but I don't recall how I felt that moment because my adrenaline was so jacked up and but you know I remember you know talking people people talking about souvenir stuff and, and getting maps or something like that so I started uh, taking stuff out of his um, purse off his body you know I started and I thought you know like uh, get in get into his wallet and I was going to find money maybe and hmm. Vietnamese North Vietnamese money that'd be a great souvenir send it home and uh, when I opened up his um, 
wallet, I found pictures of um, of his family, and I saw I found a picture of him and a, like a, it looked like his sister, and a picture of him and his mother, a picture with him with a couple of his friends, just just like I carried. I didn't know I didn't know what to do with it. I, I had no idea what to do with it. And then I could hear, I heard um, movement and, and, and someone yelling from over here, we're coming. And it was our rest of our squad. And they come out, oh, you killed one of these fuckers. And, and, and I didn't feel, I did not feel good about it. Um, I don't know how long it, I didn't, obviously I didn't take anything off him. I mean, I put everything back. I don't know if someone else did or not. If you get a confirmed KIA, Killed in action, it's like uh, you get a in-country R&R, you go to this place called Vung Tao and a place where you drink beer and have a party for two days and you don't have to be in it. And I never took it. You know, I, I, I don't think I ever felt guilty about that, about killing that guy. But I started feeling about how wrong this is. He's now taken from his family. It could have been me. I still live with, I still, I think about that guy often. According to our company commander, later, we had more contact with the enemy than any other unit in Vietnam, in the entire Vietnam. No kidding. It was just constant battle from November, the first part of November, all the way through the end of February, just constant, constant uh, being led into battle. And, and we had 660 casualties, our company, our battalion, uh, the, the battalion's 800 people. We, hundred, we had 660 casualties either killed or wounded in a, about a six-month period of time. I mean, people are coming and going. You get replacements. People get killed or wounded. They're out. You get a couple of replacements in, new guys. And uh, I, was, I was voted the, the, you know, how they do, you know, class. They vote on different things, most likely to succeed and all that stuff. I was voted the happy-go-lucky boy of the senior class of Ottawa's High School in Grand Rapids. And now, this is like two years later, at 20 years old, this is happening to me, and now my mind is so screwed up, I have this feeling, I, I don't know if all veterans feel this, but I felt it. I had this feeling of, I hated an entire race of people. I go, it's like I started feeling that I guess war breeds racism because I hated them all. And um, I got to the point of this wasn't not right away, not after that first thing that happened in September with that one guy. It was in November, December, January, where I saw so many people getting killed and wounded. And it was intense. Every day was intense. Every day scared shitless. My, I, I was a different person, but I was with all people that were different, too. I mean, so I have no nothing to base this on until I come home. That's when I found out how different I was in my brain. I, you know, I went down to Grand Haven with my friends when I came home. Let's go down to drink some beer and check the chicks out. Grand Haven. <clears throat> so we did. And, and I was laying there, laying there on the beach in Grand Haven and I go, oh man, I'm, I'm not Tim anymore. I'm not Tim. I was intense. I was... I didn't have any patience. Um, I, I spent more time alone. Uh, it, it, it ended up taking me a lifetime trying to figure it out, you know, and, and through talking with friends and I had one guy that was in the infantry, good friend of mine, Bill, who I could talk to about it. And he could relate to everything I was talking about. No one else could. Most people that went to Vietnam didn't, they weren't in the infantry. They were in the rear. And they heard stories about what was going on out there, but they didn't really experience it. And so to talk to Bill about it was a huge help for me. Everything I said to him, he knew exactly what I was talking about. Exactly. And that's really it's, that was really important for me as, as for my growth. How long did you fight with, um, with your own personal battle after you came home, after you were discharged? Um, before you realized, hey, I, I need to do something about this. It, it took a while. It took a while. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm raised a, you know, like a male in this society. And, and we as males can take care of our own problems. You know, we don't need to see a therapist. You know, like I said, I talked to my friend Bill, but then I started 
I started uh, seeing a, a counselor and started talking about it more and to see if I was going the right way. I mean, I, I, first I was married, then I was married again. I was, I've been divorced twice and I, I'm, I'm sure my intensity level had something to do with, um, with my relationships um, going awry. Uh, my kids, sometimes I, although I love all my kids and I'm close to all of them, there were times that, I mean, that I'm sad that I, I would yell at them. I never hit them, but I would yell at them. I would raise my voice to them and, and it's almost as bad as hitting, hitting them. And, uh, and I'd end up apologizing. And uh, there's things that, it just, the, the war and experiencing like I, like I experienced it, changed me as a person. And, uh, and I spent forever trying to get back. And so I had this gigantic fear of the woods. Um, every time I go in the woods, even though I took my kids for walks, um, I go in the woods with them and my dog, but every time I got in the woods, I, my, my palms would start sweating. You know, that part of it never, never went away. So, um, I felt a need to do something and I don't, what am I going to do now? I, I'm getting close to retirement age. And so I was going to, maybe, maybe I could hike the Appalachian trail and get on the trail and see, and, and, and go out in the woods and see what happens and, um, see how far I can go and try to hike without a weapon, without carrying hand grenades and claymore mines and trip flares and sandbags and, M16 and a radio and all that stuff and um, and try to enjoy somehow hopefully maybe attain some level of peace yeah out there yeah and you found that peace over a long journey 172 days 2178.2.3.3 miles um, and how many states Tim? 14 states. And 14 states. Tim started off in northern Georgia and walked all the way to Maine. Not to Maine. 280 miles into Maine. 280 <laughs> miles into the state of Maine. Yes. Um, all in one uh, pass. And we call that through hiking. Tim, tell us about your amazing journey of healing that took place on the Appalachian Trail. Well, my, my son, my son Colin, dropped me off. Uh, he, he, he took me down there and he dropped me off, him and his friend Josh, and they dropped me off in the day that there was a, there's an approach trail. It's called Amicalola State Park. And you could sign in. You sign in your name and everyone has a trail name. So I signed in my name, Tim Keenan. Trail name, Nanique. Everyone said when they met me, what's your trail name? I said, Nanique. Eventually, they just say, what's your name? It's Nanique. Because everyone on everyone on the trail had a name. Oh, really? You you take on that identity? Yes, that's your that's your name. I mean, like all the names. I don't even know most of the people's really names. I just know their real name. I don't. I just know them by their trail name. I don't even I have no idea. No one in, no one asked what's your real name. That's pretty neat. It's what's your name. So I'm Nanique. I signed in. I went up the, anyway. Colin dropped me off. It was sleety, you know, and rainy, and he, Colin just shook his head and away I went. And I get uh, near the, I'm huffing and puffing up this mountain. I, I, I go about maybe maybe 100 yards up and I'm breathing so heavily and my pack is weighs way too much. And I hear, Dad, Dad. I, I had to stop because I was breathing so hard. And I re realized it was Colin. I said, what? And he said, uh, you forgot something. It was foggy. I couldn't see him. And I said, is it, is it important? I don't want to go backwards. I just started. I'm going backwards. Yeah. And he said, yes, it's important. So I, Can you meet me halfway? So he does. He comes up and I forgot my trekking poles. I've never hiked. Like when I was hiking, last time I hiked and camped overnight was Vietnam. That's the last time I hiked and camped. I never had trekking poles. But I'm glad I had them. Those, they saved, my, saved me from falling many, many times. But Colin gave them to me, and away I went. I got up on top, 8.5 miles, got up on top of Springer Mountain, which is a, with the southern beginning of the trail. And I see all these people in tents up there, and people, and, you know, they're in the shelter, and there's a little lean-to, and they're out there. And I said, no one passed me that day, and I left about 9 o'clock in the morning. No one passed me. I didn't pass anybody. How, how these people been here for a couple days? So after I got my tent pitched... I said to this one dude, I said, hey, how'd you people get up here? 
I mean, when did you leave? And they said, we left today. Well, no one passed me. They said, you can park right over there. I go, oh, God. So I hiked an extra 8.5 miles. I didn't really have to. 2178.3 plus plus 8.5. Okay, so we'd have to grab a cal calculator. At <laughs> yes, least I would. Yes. But you, you did roughly 2180 and change. Yes, yes. Well, good for you. Yeah. I made a promise to a person I met here um, here in Traverse City who had through-hiked the trail. She's, she looked at me and she said, if you're going to do this... <clears throat> You must, you got to promise me, look me right in the eye and promise me that you're going to hike for 30 days before you quit hmm. because m most people quit. And, uh, I was kind of determined, but I, I had no idea how difficult it was. I just thought, okay, I'm not going to do anything for six months. I'll just walk. But I'm thinking just flat, flat dirt. Yeah. It'd be, you know, just walk 20 miles a day or whatever. It's not going to be that hard, but it, it was very hard, but Anyway, I said, yeah, I'll go, okay, I'll go 30 days, I promise. I, was, I, I scoffed at the idea, knowing I'll, I'll go longer than that. And when I got to Hiawassee, or near Hiawassee, which is about 70 miles in, I had a really bad day the day before. It, it had been miserable, the weather. It's been cold and rainy, and uh, my, you know, my pack was heavy, and I was alone, and, and either, either people were hiking way faster than me or, or way slower, so I never really had a partner, I was by myself, which gave me a lot of time to think. And I had to stop many times and, and, and take a deep breath and say, don't worry, Tim, there's no, no guns here. No one's gonna shoot you. Cause, <clears throat> excuse me, we were going up a hill. We, I'd be going up hills. That's what we did in Vietnam, we took hills. I'd be going up a hill and with a pack. And the last time I did that was Vietnam. So, um, you know, this one day, you know, it was rainy and cold and foggy, and <clears throat> and I was trying to find this flat area where I could pitch my tent, and and all of a sudden I heard this thunder, a, a thunderous movement in front of me, and it was like a pack of about maybe at least ten wild boars, babies and moms and dads, whatever. They were huge, and they went across the trail in front of me, maybe twenty yards up in front of me. I'm glad they didn't come towards me. Um, then I ended up finding a, a flat spot to, to camp, and there was a tent near me, which was blowing because the wind was blowing. And I yelled over at the tent. I said, hey, I um, just want to tell you I'm camping over here. Um, I'm pitching my tent. I don't want to startle anybody. <clears throat> no one said anything. I pitched the tent, got in there. I didn't eat dinner because it was raining so hard. I got up the next day, and the tent was kind of blown over sideways, and you could see a I'll look a lump in there and I go, oh no. And I got and tore the tent down, tore my tent down. And I looked over and I said, hey, are you okay? And no response. And I'm going, oh my God. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking the worst. I actually thought back about the guy in Vietnam that I shot. Yeah. And walking over to him. Yep. And finding him. And that's when now I'm walking over to that tent. And all which is blown over. Feelings. And all, all I can see in there is a lump. Because it was windy and it was a cheap tent, and it was so it was on its side. The stakes were in, but it was it was the, the poles had broken. It was down, but there was a lump in there, and I go. So after I got, I kept being in denial about it. Finally, I, okay, I, I got to go over there, and, and I went over there, and I said, "Hey, are are you is are you all right?" I was wanting someone to say something, and no one said anything. So I just slowly unzipped the tent, thinking the worst. Think I'm going to find a body in here. And it was just a bunch of equipment. Um, they, whoever it was just said, screw this, I do not. And they just left. They left their tent and everything. So there's your first indication of some of the trouble that you might be enduring. Uh, trouble of a different kind, but some of the physical uh, exertion that, that a, a hiker is going to face on the trail. You got pretty good evidence of that right in your first first few days. I was in fairly good physical condition going in, but I never, there's no way to train for the hike in the ATL. You just have to stop and do, you have to do, just stay low miles at first. Go okay. low mile and then work up to it when you get your trail legs. Don't start going. So many people make the mistake of trying to go, oh, well, I'm going to go 15, 20 miles right away. Don't do it. Go slow. And so I was doing that, but I had aches. My feet ached and, and my knees ached, but I <laughs> I, I knew I, was, I would, I didn't know at, at the time, but I was going to be aching the entire 
way, you know. Yeah. That that day when I after I saw after I I hiked across the highway and I was going to go up into the keep hiking and up near a shelter and pitch my tent up there and, and I saw this other hiker pitching his tent. It was like maybe eleven o'clock in the morning or something. And I said, kind of cold out. He said, yeah, it's cold. This is nothing. It's going to get a lot colder than that. We've got snow coming for the uh, next couple of days. And so I'd like moonwalk back to the road. And I hadn't hitchhiked in 40 years or whatever. And I hitchhiked. Hitchhiked into Hiawassee, Georgia. And, and the, uh, I got a ride right away. And, and uh, the guy ended up dropping me off at the, a Holiday Inn Express there. And I got a room there with a, uh, with a, with a tub, that, like a jacuzzi tub. I was going to quit. I talked to my son on the phone, my oldest son. He said, that's kind of part of the journey, Dad. I talked to a friend of mine, Mac, and he said, Tim, you better back, either get back on the trail or come home. And I kept remembering what I had told my mentor about the 30 days. I got to go on. I got to go on. And so I got resupplied, and I hitchhiked out back out to where the guy had picked me up, and Went out, and uh, I remember the guy's word to it. You, you got a perfect day for hiking. Perfect. This is perfect. God, I wish I was going with you, but I got I to gotta go to work. I said, yeah, God, great. So he drops me off, and as soon as he dropped me off, the temperature dropped, and it started snowing, and the wind, it was a blizzard. <clears throat> I couldn't see the white blazes that are on trees. You, could, you follow the white. There's white blazes. They're about maybe six inches long and about maybe two inches wide, two and a half inches wide. Okay. They're on the trees. That's how you follow but I couldn't see the blazes because the snow was sticking on the trees. And I didn't even know if I was on the trail or off the trail. I was getting scared and oh my God, what am I doing? I was going to go back. I was going to go back where I was, hitchhike back in again. I was going to quit again. But then I heard voices, thought I heard voices. So I kept walking towards the voices. And finally I found the shelter and there was a bunch of, there was about four or five other guys there and they were freezing their ass off. And uh, they were trying to build a, we were all trying to build a fire. We couldn't get it done because everything was wet. And, and we got, we went, we all got into our sleeping bags at like three o'clock in the afternoon. One of the guys, a younger guy, he wasn't, he was ill-prepared. He had, all he had was a light blanket. He wanted to keep his pack light. So all he had was a light blanket. No thermorest to put his body on. No sleeping bag. So he had to hunk or huddle up real close to him to keep him warm. He was just shivering. That day I learned, and I don't know why it took me for my entire life to figure this out, but it was so bad that day. It was probably my worst day on the trail that day. And, um, and the next morning, it was, I mean, my, my water bat, a bladder froze. It was all ice. Really? Yeah. But the next day, you know, I got up and uh, I tried to eat breakfast and my hands were shaking so much I couldn't eat my breakfast hardly, but I did. I got it down. I was, I was probably the last person to leave. Everyone else got on the trail earlier than me. And when I was walking, uh, the, the, cloud, the clouds, they broke and the sun came through and the trees were beautiful and they were just covered with snow and ice and the sun coming in. And the sun then warmed, and, and then the trees, the the the, the rain, or the, the they were it was dripping the icicles. They were dripping the water because they were melting, and it was like it was beautiful. And I thought to myself, Tim, all through life, when you when a storm happens, when you go through bad times in your life, or in this case, me hiking the trail going through all that bad stuff, uh, the weather, and all of a sudden it's, the sun's coming out, it's getting warm, and the, I've, I've survived the storm, and now I'm feeling so uh, wonderful, exuberant, I mean, like, I'm elated, I'm just, now, I, I pass, all those people that um, left before me, I, I passed them all. Because sometimes if we just sleep on it, and the next day, mm. think, even though you have the same, same problem, you look at it a little bit differently the next day. A little new perspective. Just even the same things happen. Okay, I can take care of this. I can do this. And that's what happened to me that day. I thought, nothing. I can, I can do anything. I, then I reflected back on the war. I survived Vietnam. You know, I can do this. I know I can do this because I'm going to have moments like this of the sun shining on me 
for this entire journey, it's going to happen. I'm going to have bad days and I'm going to have a lot of good days. So then what, Tim, after, uh, after you battled through your first, uh, your first literal and proverbial storm where, uh, where you needed to, to tie into a second gear and find that, find that motivation to drive through uh, the pain or drive through the, the junk, so to speak. What happened, uh, what happened after that? It's good to have like a, like the rabbit has a carrot. Uh, Tim needed to have a carrot. And if, and if I had something to look forward to up ahead, it'd be easier for me to walk, you know, whether it be, God, I looked at my map, God, if I hike, if I hike another like 40 or 50 miles, there's a road, uh, and then like 0.7 down the road, there's a restaurant with food and I can go in there and just pig out. And so, cause I'm thinking about food constantly. Yeah. When you're burning through all of those but calories. I lost a bunch of weight. I lost, um, I lost in a, probably in a month, I lost 35 pounds. Okay. And I wasn't a big guy, but. So food was a big motivator for you. And was your trail partner, um, motivated by food the same way that you were? Yes. Yeah. And we'd go in, you know, we sometimes, you know, take a little trail off and go down, find this restaurant and for breakfast and then order four breakfasts. And the waitress would say, are you expecting someone else? No, no, just bring four breakfasts. We order like a, an omelet and, you know, pancakes, French <laughs> toast and, you know, like whatever, four different full breakfasts. And she thought we were ordering for two other people, but it was all for us. Yeah, you'll burn all that up by afternoon. Burn all up. You don't gain a. You can eat anything. You don't gain a pound. Yeah. You know, Cosmos did it. She had. I mean, for breakfast, I had a like a baggie. I would have. A, I did this the entire time. I had a it like full of like you know baggie got a bunch of uh, grape nuts in there and dried bananas and blueberries and powdered sugar, powdered milk, and um, and just uh, I had a, 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 you know I have three or four of those for breakfast each morning. And then I'd have one for breakfast. So that lasts me four days. And then I, so I morning just before I tear everything down, get my tent all ready to go. I mean, get my, get my pack all ready to go. All I got to do is two things, eat my breakfast, brush my teeth and I'll be on the trail. And I just put some water in there, shake it up and eat breakfast and, and then brush my teeth and put so, my pack on and start walking. And you do the same thing every day. And it's like, uh, you eventually get addicted to the lifestyle. It's yeah. very simple. You get there's no problems of the world. There's no news facing you. There's no politics. There's no you don't have to read about war yeah. or about people doing violent stuff to one another. Yeah, because I mean, that's all the news is. It seems. I was just feeling it. I was, I was feeling. Uh, I just couldn't get enough of it, and I got to the point of what am I going to do when I get off the trail? I think about the trail every single day. Damascus, Virginia, was a was a was a big carrot. And I had heard about this. My mentor here in Traverse City had told me about trail. You got to go to trail days. Okay. Trail days is when you hike. When you leave uh, Springer, it takes, it's about 500 miles mm -hmm. to get there. And, um, and it's this big event in Damascus, Virginia. It's their biggest event of the year by far. And okay. they celebrate through hikers. Damascus is 500, and, and 500 miles in, I think. So it's quite a ways. And, uh, and, and we actually came through Damascus. By then, um, Cosmos had joined me. We had actually hiked. We came through Damascus, but it was like uh, three or four days before tra trail days. <clears throat> we hiked on. We hiked about another like 70 miles beyond it. And then we hitchhiked back in. And so, and we came back in and there's a big tent city where uh, all these tents of through hikers and, uh, so it's, it's the through hikers of uh, like, say this year be 2017 when they have the big parade on Saturday, the 2017 this year led the parade then to be followed by the 16, 15, 14, all the way down, all the way back as far as you want to go. There's just thousands of hikers, uh, former hikers. And, uh, and so it's, it's a, it's just a huge celebration of, uh, of hiking. It's their biggest event of the year. So Tim, after trail days in Damascus, um, what got you motivated to, uh, to complete the rest of the trail all the way to Maine? Just certain events. One thing, um, I had Cosmos with me, which is a big thing. I mean, I don't, I, I like to think I would have completed the trail because I would, I hike, you know, almost 400 miles without her, but she was a big motivating factor for me. And when I was have I have moments 
uh, PTSD moments on the trail. And um, I shared some stuff with her, but a lot of times I would be lying in bed at night or wake up early in the morning and I'd think about it, be thinking about stuff. And it was just nice to have her there. And so a lot of times she didn't even really know she was helping me when she was. But a lot of times she was just by listening to me. I could, I could tell her anything and she would just listen to me. And uh, so, because, you know, some, we got in areas where you, you, could, you could hear low-flying jets or something. I'm, here I am out in the woods, low-flying jets. It just, it's, a, it's a major flashback of yeah. bombing and, and the enemy and, uh, and, and war and lives lost. And I can't tell you how many times I thought of friends. Friends lost or friends that I, just wondering how people were that I can't contact. I don't know how to contact them. If they're okay now, when you're out there on the trail, you think that's all there is to do is think. There's nothing to look at, nothing to distract you. You know, you got the rocks, you got the roots, you got to watch as you're hiking. But the rest of the time, you're just thinking. And uh, so, if you're not, if I'm not thinking about my friends and my family, I'm thinking about food. <laughs> and uh, so I'm thinking about the next restaurant up here called the Home Place. That's all you can eat on a Saturday, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. So we planned our 250 miles we hiked to get to this point, and we perfect timing and went in there and pretty much ate everything. <laughs> Ordered the whole menu <laughs> yes. twice. It was, yeah, yeah. It was just it was all you can eat. You know, I mean, really good, great food. But anyway, so I just kept going and and you know meeting new people. Um, just kept meeting new people along the way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then you catch up with people and, and then you might say, Hey, I'll, I'll see you, I'll see you up the trail. You may never see him again. And so I learned that you, if you're going to, if you connect with this person, get their contact info, information. So when you get off the trail, you can, cause you're probably not, not going to see him again. This, this young kid I met on the trail really early, his trail name was I'm fine. He threw hiked the entire Appalachian Trail when he was 17. And this is next year, he was 18. He had long dreads. And uh, so I met him about like maybe 15 miles after I and he, he was in, such an inspiration to me because I remembered things he, he told me to enjoy and keep a smile on my face because you're so lucky you can do this. And he didn't know anything about me. And, uh, but he was right. And, and he was 18? He was 18. Oh, that's really cool. He had these long dreads that he had been growing since nine years old. And he got on top of Blood Mountain, which is like 30 miles be from the beginning of the trail. And I saw him at an outfitter and his, he had cut his dreads off. I saw him. I, I saw this kid, saw the back, of, the back of his head. I saw this guy with a really weird haircut. And he ended up turning around. I go, is that a, I'm fine? He said, oh my God, man, he can you, what happened to your dreads? He said, I cut them off on top of Blood Mountain. It's the highest part in Georgia. And I said, why? He said, because I want to make my dad proud of me. I'm going, you're, you through-hiked the entire Appalachian Trail when you were 17. Your dad's, that's what I thought to myself. Your dad must be proud of you. He must be. I mean, it's incredible what you did. And, uh, but he taught me to just enjoy, enjoy the journey and, um, the White Mountains were an imposing thing. They're in New Hampshire, or they're in New Hampshire. They're they're huge, and so you're hiking on. Well, I'm fine. Said to me, 15 miles in, the White Mountain. Everyone's going to talk to you about the White Mountains, Nanique, about how hard they are. By the time you get to the White Mountains, you're going to be in such good physical condition. You're going to walk right up the mountain, and you're not going to have any problems. So don't worry about it. In fact, when you get to the White Mountains. Enjoy how beautiful it is out there. And that's exactly what happened. I think people that um, have a problem with completing the trail don't stop and smell the roses and look around and, and, and feel uh, how fortunate you are that you can do this and what you're experiencing instead of focusing in because you, you know you got a blister. So how far... Um... After, the, after summiting the Whites, did you need to walk in order to summit Katahdin in Maine? Once you, once you cross into Maine, it's another 280 miles to Katahdin. And, uh, but, you know, it, by that time, again, it, it wasn't that difficult physically. There was this one place in Maine right off, 
if you if you look at the map, if you take a blue blaze trail off off the trail a little bit about I don't know 0.8 miles, you're going to come to a little a, I mean a lake, and there's going to be a, a, a like a blow horn there. Blow the horn, and you go. So you, we get off there and we blew the horn. You could look across the lake and see a guy come out of the cabin, and he gets in a boat and he comes over there and gets you and takes you back, and then. That's where I spent, spent my 63rd birthday. What a cool culmination of events. So you turn 63, you get the Appalachian Trail behind you. Um, and for the most part, you learn to cope with PTSD in a very, uh, in a very healthy way. You know, I think every I mean, it's not that I didn't think about it. I mean, about the Vietnam stuff, because I thought about it every single day. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and I thought, but, but the, the fear... Uh, you know the edginess that went that went away, and um, I didn't I didn't have that that edginess anymore. It was just like I didn't even think about it anymore. And before, at, at first when I first started, I thought about it every day. I'd be looking around, and then it it, it just it, that part of it just went away. What did it feel like when you summited Katahdin? My adrenaline was pumping so hard. We you know we had when we stopped at Baxter State Park down below. We had five point two miles to go, and you. Before you hike, you have to look at the weather report the next day to make sure it's okay up there, and uh, it was. And and we we were the last ones out of camp, and um, I was just I just was flying. I passed everybody, and and so uh, uh, Cosmos was behind me. We got I knew it was it was foggy, and I knew we had to be getting close. All of a sudden, I thought I heard voices, and I looked ahead, and I saw some people in the fog, and then I saw the sign. And I turned around and looked at Cosmos, and she had a, a smile on her face, like uh, of being proud, you know, of being proud of me. And I just started crying, and uh, I was just, I was overcome with emotion. And um, I kind of felt, you know, like, that I did this, not just, you know, it, I did it, but it wasn't just for me. It was for a whole lot of people. And, uh, and, and, and I, I made it, I was there. And that completed the chapter. That completed that chapter. That completed that chapter. That allowed me to, um, that, 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 it just opened up everything for me. I mean, um, I kept a journal along the way. I mean, I, I religiously wrote in every day. If I was too tired to write, I would write bullet points and I would remember everything that happened that day. And I wanted to write a entire journal and have it printed out and, and give a copy to all my children <clears throat> and for my grandchildren to see and their children and their grandchildren. Cause eventually one of them, someone that I'm related to will also hike that trail. So the, the, the journal turned into a book, and then I end up, um, I, got, I got the whole thing done, and it, it, it was pretty good. But there's so many Appalachian Trail books, but I didn't really care about that at the time. But a friend of mine down in Mexico said, Don't you, didn't you do that because of Vietnam? I go, yeah. And he said, weren't you going to write about Vietnam at one time? I said, yeah, but I can't. I couldn't, I can't, couldn't get by certain days. And he said, you think you could do it now? And I said, that's a good point. I think I can. I think I could. And so as I thought of things that happened to me, um, as I thought of uh, Vietnam and friends and different instances uh, on the trail, I, would, I, I talked about my experience in Vietnam because I wanted somehow for others to... I, I don't expect them to ever feel the intensity I felt and, and, and the horror that I felt and the sorrow and the sadness, and the fear, but I want them to at least get a taste of it. So Tim, uh, let's talk a little bit about the gear that you were using while you were on the trail. Um, I know that every, everybody who embarks on a journey like yours um, has, a, has a list that they've got to go you know, see their local outfitter about. Um, what were some of the things that you took along with you on the hike that come to mind um, when, we're, when we sit you know, three years later? Snickers. 
No, I mean Snickers bars. <laughs> Snickers bars. Check. I want Snickers. You got to have something to reward yourself. Like I said about the carrot, the little carrot was when you complete your okay. This 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 hill or this mountain is five thousand feet. When you get to the top, have a Snickers. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, you got to reward yourself. a little yourself. mental motivator. Yeah. I mean, get up there and just sit down on a rock, look around, and just eat a Snickers or whatever. Candy. Piece of candy. Whatever. Whatever you want to treat yourself with. Cool. Have a treat up there. Cool. And, uh, but, you know, as far as stuff on the on the trail, I mean, like, good. Sh- you got to have good shoes. You've got to take care of your feet because your feet are going to take a pounding. There's a lot of rocks. And there's a lot of roots. And the roots are slippery, especially when it rains. And um, you've got to have good shoes. And uh, I had this um, this Vosk shoes, and um, and the the webbing. I mean, I, I had I had I got I had got new shoes somewhere. I can't. I think I was in New York or something. And I was like, I was like, uh, I had, I had maybe five or six hundred miles on these shoes, and it, it was rough, like I said, rugged terrain. But the the webbing around them was just whip, ripping, just a little bit, not bad. I could have made it all the way. It wouldn't have been a problem. But I called Vosk and told him about it. I said, I'm a thru-hiker. And they sent me a brand new pair of shoes. The next the next place, next place, town I went to, there was a brand new pair of shoes waiting for me. And they're, they're really good about that. And Osprey, my pack, the same thing. I had a, there was a little bit of a, a rip. It was no big deal. They were, obviously, I had hiked almost 2,000 miles with it. But they sent me a brand new pack. So the outfitters, the stuff you get, now things are way better. My pack probably weighed 35 pounds. Everyone I met in Damascus when I went down there for trail days this year to do a, like a book signing gig there, um, their packs all weighed under 30 pounds. When it rains, your pack, I mean, the tent's so heavy, and now the, the water doesn't, it doesn't even light on it. It just goes off. It doesn't even, so it's the same weight even after a storm. Yeah, and you don't need to bother with a pack shell. No. Right. No. Okay. You don't. What'd you do for water treatment? I used Aquamira. I used to filter it first, and then, you know, I didn't um, maintain it like I should have, and mm. it stopped. It stopped working. And uh, when I got to Damascus for trailers, I I was just in there looking for anything I needed, and I heard these these guys talking about former through hikers about Aquamira, how valuable it was. I said, what is that? And they told me it's little little couple little bottles. They're really light. You just drop a couple, five drops in, of each. You let it in here and it change color, pour it in your bladder, and then five minutes later, your water's going to be good. What is the one piece of gear that you would recommend splurging on or spending a little bit more than you would feel comfortable with in order to, to ensure you're getting the best quality? I would get um, one thing to remember. Let, let me just interject this. And this is my mentor, and she was right. Keep your sleeping bag dry at all costs. Keep your sleeping bag dry. Don't let your sleeping bag get wet. I mean, do not do it. And so I would, you know, I would tear it down in the tent and and get everything, put it in my water thing thing and, and double bag it with garbage bags or whatever, put it at the bottom of my, of my pack and kept it dry. And so a, a, a good tent, a good tent's good. A good tent. A good, a good tent. A good, a light, good tent that you can... Because you're going to come up with, you're going to have days it's going to be windy and you're thinking, oh my, this my tent's going to blow down. But it doesn't. I mean, they hold up. So there's so many good tents. So a good tent and keep your sleeping bag dry. Did you go with a downs or a synthetic fill for your sleeping bag? I just had a regular sleeping bag. Okay. Yeah. Did, I think I had down. I had down. Did you ever change up the fill depending on which season you were in? I sent it home. I had, a, I had, I had two. I had, a, I had a light one and a heavy one. Okay. So when I got to Roanoke, Virginia, I sent the I sent the, the heavy one home and the light one came. Smart. Yeah. And then when I got to into just before I got into the whites, my friend Tom, he sent me the the heavier one again. Heavy one, and I sent the light one back. Did that work out pretty well? Yeah. Okay. Worked out great. Cool. So some trail tips from uh, from a seasoned pro. Thanks, Tim. What was one of the the life lessons that you could take from some of the highlights in your story? There's a lot of people in the world, and you know, I mean, you may not, um, you may not like all of them, but um, they're all, they all have goodness in them, and they'll all help you. Um, sometimes in this country, we're we're all about being in a hurry. You don't have yeah. to be in a hurry, and um, 
and sometimes, um, you know, when I end up going back to, um, you know, through hiking the AT, and end up going back to, end up going back to Vietnam uh, a few years later, and meeting my enemy, they were always smiling, even though we devastated their country, and I, uh, I'm just trying to learn from watching others and and try to even though I'm older now it's not too late for me to continue to try to change to try to make my life better and make and try to help others around me that uh, are maybe less fortunate than me Tim actually had uh had a mentor and a friend encourage him to write a book on Vietnam and um talked to Tim about uh making good on that promise 30 years later uh and Tim did um, through his journals, his daily journals on the trail. He wrote a book. It's called The Good Hike. If you want some of the, the main details that uh, that um, comprise his entire story, he actually goes day by day through his journal entry. And I did read the book. It's a very good book. Um, if you want all the details that took place on that trip, uh, check it out. The Good Hike. Um, you can find it on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Um, Tim is also the subject of an award-winning uh, documentary. They did a short film uh, on him, and it's called Nanique, N-A-N-E-E-K. It was directed by Neil Stino, and uh, if you want to check that out, you can go online. I'm going to give Tim a second to, uh, to fill us in on the details there. If, uh, if you have any questions about today's podcast, um, you can also go to www.adventuredeficit.com where we'll play all of the show notes in, uh, in today's episode um, and put, uh, put any of the uh, web addresses that come up um, on there as well. So, um, Tim, what, uh, what do you have to tell us about uh, Nanik? Sorry, well, Nanik, I mean, Nanik, close enough. I mean, Nanik um, was a, is, uh, well... Like I, I ended up going back to Vietnam, which I would never have done if I hadn't hiked AT. And my youngest son, Jake, he said, oh, I want to go back with you. And so I said, okay, if you get a passport, I'll go. And so we got a passport and I didn't think he would, but he did. And then, uh, and then we were planning on going. And then this uh, friend of mine that lived in Milwaukee, he, he's a, actually a designer, never, not a filmmaker, but he had a dream that he was a filmmaker and he filmed a combat vet going back to Vietnam. And he asked me if I would consider doing that. Uh, long story short, we weren't gonna do, I wasn't gonna do it. I talked to my son, Jake, about it. And you know, we don't want a camera following us around, but then we thought, okay, well maybe perhaps if we do this, it might help other vets, veterans that are going through the same kind of stuff that I was. And uh, um, my, my main, main thing for me was, um, forgiveness and um, both asking the Vietnamese people for, for, for forgiveness and for me to forgive what they did to my friends. And um, so the, the film is, it's, it's called Nanique. It was, it was um, in the Traverse City, the Michael Moore's Film Festival and won the Audience Award for their best short documentary. And it won an award at the Woodstock Film Festival. We showed it in San Diego and, and um, well, all over the United States actually, but now it's on, available online. You can get it on YouTube or you, you can just go to nanique.com, click on, you'll see the film, you can click on it. It's a very emotional film. It was a, very emotional for me. I don't, I could never have done it without my son being with me. It, it was another part of the healing process for me. Well, some overwhelming themes that come up through Tim's story um, are persevere. Good things will come. Um, battle through the crud. Hike through those first 30 days, fight through that PTSD, whatever it is that comes your way, we all have different battles to face. Tim has, a, has given us a great reminder um, of what it means to, uh, to live on, to move on, to push. What, uh, what else would, would you like to close with before we say goodbye? Well, of course, I, I am a big, huge lover of the Appalachian Trail. If you, if you can get on that trail, take care of it and enjoy it and love it. And uh, also just look at the, 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 the beauty and the goodness of the people around you because it's hard to do. And uh, be good. Be kind. That's great stuff. 
Tim, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you so, so much for, um, for agreeing to go there with us. Uh, we, we really covet your thoughts. We, uh, we really appreciate your advice. And uh, we just really enjoyed spending some time with you. Adventure Deficit community, if you have any questions about today's show, we'll post all of our show notes on today's episode at www.adventuredeficit.com. Uh, appreciate you guys spending some time with us. Cheers.